I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers group curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers group curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geiser. This month, we're reading Beyond Behaviors by Dr. Mona Delahook. Let's get into it. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Laura. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club podcast. Today, we're discussing Beyond Behaviors, Chapter 7. Before we get into that, we're going to have a little conversation. So Adrian, I'm going to do something different. I had something happen to me two days ago that has been really bugging me. Okay. And this is going to lead into questions that do relate to our job. First, it's going to start totally off topic. So I was walking my dogs and my neighbor from two houses down drove by and first he waved. Then he backed up his car, rolled down his window and told me that it was too hot to be walking my dogs. And when I laughed and was like, okay, like, actually, it's fine. He sat there and just said no, and kept pointing like, head back home, as if he were my dad, What? scolding me. It's not like I could just go, all right, see you later. He was gonna stay there and make sure I turned around and headed back to my house. He said it was 91 degrees. But when I looked, it was... I was just going to say, it wasn't even that hot two days ago. <laughs> I looked, it was 81 what? degrees. Listen, during the summer, I you're not going to see me out here walking my dogs in the middle of the day. Okay, so long story short, I felt embarrassed by my reaction. And I've been thinking about it for days because I just kind of was like, all right. And I turned and walked home. And what I wanted to say was, mind your own business. I've had dogs my entire adult life. I know when I can take them out. These are my dogs, and I'm going to take care of them the way I want to. But I am a major conflict avoider. Yeah. So my questions are twofold. Do you ever weigh those decisions and go, I don't want to have a conflict with my neighbor two houses down. I'm not going to say anything. Do you avoid it and just like kind of let them walk all over you? And then also in the school setting, have you ever had conflicts with teachers? Because I have a story too of a conflict with a teacher in the past that really weighed on me for like a whole school year. And I just want to know your thoughts. Okay. First of all, God, that is so weird. And yeah, mind your own business. That's like for sure the phrase (laughs) to use in that situation. Mind your own business. You are not the boss of me, right? (laughs) 
boss somebody else around. Gosh. I don't even know him. We've met one time. Okay. The audacity, honestly. Yeah, I also have a personality Mm -hmm. that sort of avoids conflict. And a lot of the time, if it's interpersonally, like a lot of my, I'm just like, well, I'll just do it myself. That's pretty much always my go-to thought. Like, I'll just do it myself. It's fine. But when you're talking about like a neighbor, I have had some like weird interactions with neighbors before. One time I had this neighbor and these were not neighbors, like your direct neighbors right to like the left or the right of you. You, I feel like I'm always kind of more friendly with them, like on better terms. I see them more often. But in this neighborhood, this was a house that was like down the block. And I think that their number part of the address was very similar to ours. There was just like one digit that was off. Mm -hmm. And my sister had something delivered to my house. And I think it was speakers for like a record player and they were pretty big and she typed in the address wrong and it went to their house okay so she's like oh no my speakers went over there i see the delivery notification and it's like a picture of their doorstep and she's like i don't i don't know we gotta go get it can we get it and i was gonna go over there like in a couple hours and then i hear this like knock on my door and i open the door and it's a woman standing there like older and i'm like hi and she's like are these yours And she's like all mad and like has a picture on her phone. She's like, something got delivered to our house and we did not order it. Like really mad. And I was like, oh yeah, I think those are my sisters actually. She was just telling me about that. I'll come grab it. And she's like, well, actually. And then she goes on this rant telling me that some group that I'm a part of as an SLP, the address was put in wrong and they have been getting my mail from this like doesn't matter kind of like junky just like whatever they're just sending out notices but they've been getting my mail for a while and she's like so mad about it but this is like the first time hearing about it and i'm like oh i didn't i'm sorry i didn't realize she's like we have a whole box of your mail at our house and i was like oh my gosh she's like we've tried to return it to the mailbox we tried to talk to them we tried to and it's still happening and she was like so And I just remember being taken aback because I was so like unprepared for the situation, which I think is like probably what happened to you is you're just like not ready for this, this behavior that's so outside of the realm of like what's appropriate, which I guess we should be used to because we work with so many people who are, you know, not the best in social situations. But you know, it is like really alarming when either a stranger or a neighbor, because a neighbor often is a stranger. I wouldn't even call it an acquaintance. Yeah, like you said, it's unexpected when they come at you with something that they are clearly so offended by that they've worked themselves up over. I mean, I could see that though, an older couple getting very mad that they're getting mail for somebody else and being just like baffled by it. Whereas when I get mail for someone else, if it's clearly someone on my block, I go and put it on their mailbox. The mailman has delivered the wrong mail to me before. It's not a big deal. I find whose it is and I return. But anyways, I don't know if I told you the story of when I was getting gas one time and I stopped the gas a little early. And I a remember. Woman... <laughs> I remember the story verbatim. <laughs> what did she say to me? I stopped it early. I had bought $50 worth of gas, but there was somebody suspicious nearby. And I was kind of like, okay, I want to get out of here. And I was anxious to get to my sister's. And a woman came over to me and said, if you're living, what did she say to me? If you're living beyond your means, 
you need to take it down a notch. <laughs> and then she did this motion with her hands where she was like, take it down a notch. Like she emphasized it. And I was frozen. In your Prius? No, I was in my Subaru. Subaru. <laughs> your extravagant lifestyle what vibe am I putting out there I wasn't driving a Mercedes I didn't have on fancy like jewelry like you know I don't have my nails done like there's nothing about me that I think screams living beyond my means so you just but you know what I'm thinking now I got onto the blue pathway because I shut down when she did that to me I was like face tingling frozen in place just with my mouth agape and I think I said okay and turned and walked away yeah <laughs> like yeah I didn't even have a response and it's kind of like that with my neighbor I think I go blue pathway during conflict period yeah me too which is so sad yeah yeah right it's like some people go red and I kind of admire it if they fight if I go red I flee I will get out of there as fast as possible I know, but like, I don't know if red is the right way. I see people who like instantly are like ready to fight. Like if you're going to come at me, I'm going to come at you. I kind of envy that because when I think when you go blue pathway, like you and I, then we're like reliving the fight in our head. I should have said this, should have done this. If only I would have said this. (laughs) Yes, we relive it for days. And then the people that went red. Okay, I think if you (laughs) go red and you like, say things that you then regret, then you probably have that feeling. But my fiance goes, he loves confrontation. He always says it. He's like, oh, I love a confrontation. I wish that person would say something to me so I could get into it. And I don't think he ever regrets what he does. You know, like if he sees somebody, we saw somebody in our yard the other day and he goes flying out the door, yeah, slams the door and is like, what are you doing here? And then the guy takes off and he came back in and then he's like, couldn't let it go he went looking for that guy like he watched him he he followed him all around the neighborhood he described his route to me like he was like then I decided I wasn't gonna get into yeah. it it's not like he's ever gonna just like me hide mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't know we don't know which one mm. is better okay so what about with people you work with yeah in a school setting I think I'm a little bit more likely to have conflict because I feel more confident in the setting and like more justified a lot of the times if somebody has an issue with me or like anything with speech or what's going on with the speech room I'm much more likely to kind of fight back right away because I just feel so like I'm sorry I have to pull this student from your class at this time and it's your very important time in the garden like (laughs) these are legal services what can I do this is a legally mandated thing you know so I think I feel like, yeah, I have more to like back it up or something. It doesn't feel purely emotional. Yeah. So. Well, that's the yeah. exact situation that I dealt with that I was thinking of. I went to pull my kids at yeah. my regular time and the teacher just was not having a good day. And she literally yelled at me in front of her class. Uh, you always have to take them at this time. We have tests on Friday. I was like, lady. We've been doing this for months. You've never said something calmly to me. And now you're yelling at me in front of all my students. I see every kid in your class. Hmm. And so I went and vented my frustration to the wrong person, my assistant principal, and just kind of like not even saying she yelled at me. Like I was just like, it was more of a like, she's off her rocker today. (laughs) 
know? Right. And then he told the principal and the principal called her in and like had a sit down with her. And so then she told the OT, be careful what you say to Miss Laura. She'll go and tattle on you. Oh, Oh, no. I mean, this plagued me like the whole year. We We got to a kind of okay place. I don't know. Yeah. What a nightmare. Yeah. You just can't win sometimes. You know what, though? I think this is a timely discussion to have right now because as the school year is rolling out, everybody's been getting into their schedules for, you know, about a month now. And so I feel like everybody's probably been feeling that conflict. And I wish it wasn't always so intense between gen ed classroom teachers and speech and OT people who need to pull out because... It feels like every year it's just the same arguments and the same like, well, that time doesn't work and that time doesn't work. And then it's I feel like it makes me feel so defensive because scheduling is so difficult. Yeah. And sometimes at the elementary school level, it's not bad. But I've been at so many middle schools and high schools where you're dealing with block schedules on certain days and, you know, only like two available times where these kids have electives and you're trying to pull and like you have to pull from Spanish because it's technically an elective. But you know, it's more academic and the teacher is mad and it's like, I can see it, but I also, my hands are so tied and, you know. Yeah, I was going to say I interned at a middle school in grad school and that speech therapist did not have a set schedule at all. Like maybe for a couple kids she did because they needed to, the kid needed to know, but she didn't believe in pulling kids always from the same elective. She didn't think that was fair. And so she kind of just like played with it. Yeah, but now your life is miserable. (laughs) She kind of played. I mean, her caseload was really low because she was like a bilingual assessor for the district. So she got assigned to a lot of different places. And, you know, her numbers, it was pretty manageable. We could kind of just go like, why don't we try to see these kids today? I don't know. It was very interesting. But I did have some teachers yell at me on the phone when I called for the kids. They'd go, can you guys just give us a set time? Oh, yeah. (laughs) like, I wish. (laughs) So once again, you can't win. Like this teacher or the speech therapist is trying to be nice to these kids. She loves her kids and she doesn't want to always pull them from their only good, the only class that they (laughs) were really loving. And then, yeah. Well, if you're out there and you are currently dealing with this, we We feel you (laughs) support you. (laughs) But avoid conflict at all costs. If it's with a teacher, you have to see every single day. Don't be a tattletale like Laura. (laughs) And don't don't ever tattletale. I had like a personal relationship. I thought I was talking to a trusted friend. Yikes. So he's really the tattletale. Yeah, it's not Laura. I did not want to never call you a tattletale. I really am not a gossip. I'm a gossip. Yes. Yes. But not a tattletale. Sure. It's not. Okay. (laughs) All right. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to discuss chapter seven. The SLP book club is not just a podcast. It's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. Want even more of the SLP book club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G. SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more about the SLP book club, go to the slpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at the slpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at SLP underscore book club or on TikTok at the SLP book club.
Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. SLP? I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. <laughs> Since I'm a teletherapist, I use Boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her Lidcomb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing. And I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a connect four donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. <laughs> the best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based, and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G. SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. All right, let's get started with chapter seven. This is the beginning of part three of Beyond Behaviors, which Dr. Delahook calls neurodiversity, trauma, and looking to the future. And this chapter is about autism and neurodiversity, and the chapter is titled Handle with Care. And just a note, I loved this chapter. I think if you work with kids with autism, this is really important information to read. And I encourage you to make sure you read it in depth because the way the chapter is structured is a little all over the place. So I feel like my going over it is not going to flow very well necessarily. I'm going to do my best, but that's my note. Yeah, no, I felt the same when I was reading it. I was, it was kind of like more compartmentalized or something, but um, good information. Yeah, yeah. Very good information. She starts with the story of a boy named Norton. He's eight years old and was diagnosed with high-functioning autism at age four. His parents sought support as soon as they could, and Dr. Delahook was the developmental psychologist who was working with him. Norton did really well in school because he had really great visual and auditory memory, but the school wasn't thrilled about some of his behavioral differences, including snapping his fingers. Sometimes with the behaviors she describes, I go, okay, but what about the really disruptive behaviors? <laughs> because I could see... You know, I was actually thinking that. I was thinking that throughout... I don't know. I had some thoughts. We talked about it. Yeah. There are parts towards the end where she gets more into like, okay, of course, if it's really significant behaviors, this is more what you do. But okay. So his second grade teacher thought the behavior was disruptive and wanted a behavior support plan. Dr. Delahook and the parents met and discussed whether they should target the behavior or first figure out the meaning and value of the behavior for Norton. You know, what purpose was the snapping serving? She asks, should we encourage a child to change their behavior before we understand its functionality? And can we change our beliefs and expectations instead? That's going to come up a lot in this chapter. Yeah. She said she has become more and more concerned over the years with how behaviors are understood and managed for children with autism. Her biggest concern being for those children who have complex communication challenges and are labeled as nonverbal. And she makes a little note that she calls these children non-speakers or individuals who type to communicate because those terms acknowledge that their challenge is not necessarily at the verbal or thinking level. But it's important to respect a child's individual differences. And her experience on multidisciplinary teams has showed her how a child's brain and body processing affects development, behaviors, and mental health. Children make adaptations to adjust to their unique brain and body processing 
And we should have curiosity about those behaviors instead of automatically seeing them as disordered. She says there are areas that have been researched that can help us understand behaviors in autism, including sensory over-responsivity, which has been added to the DSM-5 as a criteria for diagnosis because it's estimated that 56 to 70% of children diagnosed with autism have sensory Mm over-responsivity, also gastrointestinal issues, sleep disturbances, and anxiety. And working with a lot of kids with autism, I can attest I saw those four things in a lot of them. Definitely. A report was published in 2000 called From Neurons to Neighborhoods that synthesized research on children's brain and social development. And it stated that the growth of self-regulation is a cornerstone of early childhood development that cuts across all domains of behavior. But Dr. Delahook says we often try to shift behaviors without considering the impact that it will have on a child's emotional regulation and supporting emotional regulation through relationships should guide all that we do, especially when we work with children with autism. And autism expert Teresa Hamlin says that we often overlook the effects of anxiety and stress in our treatment approaches because we focus on increasing socialization, communication, and school behavior, but overlook the fact that without addressing stress, these goals can't be actualized. I felt a little called out there. I know. I just think back on some of the therapy I did with kids who challenged me the most. And I don't really know what I was doing to help in some situations. Well, I think a takeaway for me from this chapter was that the behaviors need to be addressed before the learning can take place. Mm -hmm. So if you were distracted trying to like focus on the behaviors and maybe the therapy to do that wasn't the best, I wouldn't beat yourself up. I mean, I think like kind of an unspoken statement throughout this whole chapter was sort of about ABA therapy, Mm -hmm. which I know has been like pretty controversial, getting a lot of flack over the past, I don't know, five to 10 years. Uh, Yeah. So I think that it's this more like trying to stamp out the behaviors. It's, I don't know, like even like forcing eye contact, you know, like we all have had goals where we've tried to work on eye contact. And after reading this, it's like, I don't even know. I'm with you. Maybe sometimes my therapy wasn't great, but maybe I was working on making the child comfortable and feel safe. Like I implemented some sort of routine that they became very familiar with. And, you know, maybe all I was doing was providing a time in the day that the kid knew exactly what to expect and felt pretty safe with me. So maybe I should feel good about it. (laughs) I don't know. Right. Dr. Delahook also mentions that her treatment approach is guided by hearing from young adults with autism about the treatment they received when they were young, even from her own clients. And she said her clients, when they're adults, often tell her they remember having fun with her. And parents say that she encouraged them to always presume competence. So in this chapter, this was kind of all an intro, (laughs) we're going to dive into the behaviors we often observe in children with autism and discuss how to be supportive instead of judgmental until we discover what the behaviors represent in the child's experience of his own body and mind. Our culture is biased toward valuing behaviors that we can easily understand and that make our lives easier as caregivers or teachers or SLPs. So you can see that when a new mom says she's such a good baby or when we give good grades to kids who can follow directions and sit still for extended periods of time. But when we reward children with good behavior, we send a message to children whose natural tendencies don't fall within that range of what we view as good behavior. 
it's understandable that we do this, especially in education, but we ignore the importance of understanding and not judging the range of individual differences children have and demonstrate in their behavior. We see behaviors as part of a checklist on the autism diagnosis and not as the adaptations that they most likely are. And autism researcher Anne Donnellan calls behavior variations in autism sensory and movement differences. So now she has a section on presuming competence. If we try to get children to do things that their bodies aren't inclined to do or aren't ready for, we can negatively influence their self-perception and create additional stress for them. The autistic author Ido Kadar, he wrote, um, Ido in Autism Land is the book he wrote. He wrote, my body is its own challenge all by itself, which I thought was kind of profound. It's like, we're trying to get them to do all this stuff. And he's just trying to like be, you know, just deal with the sense of the stuff that's coming in and what his body's doing. And then we're putting all this extra expectations and pressure on these kids. So he also said the experts couldn't understand what he had learned. They either thought he was dumb or didn't understand that he had learned it in a different way than expected. And I just made a note, like, I think that there are just some people that get it. And others, sadly, that we see that work in special ed who just can't see it. And, you know, I feel like I always realized sort of the brilliance of the kids I worked with, especially the ones with the most challenging behaviors, because the ones with the most challenging behaviors were also the ones that, you know, were really talented in other areas or made you laugh the hardest because they were so funny at times or made your eyes tear up because they made so much progress in a short amount of time. So I feel like I remember in grad school, them telling us how to write IEP present levels of performance and being like, you have to start with strengths. And sometimes it's going to be really hard to think of strengths. And I'm like, no, (laughs) like even with your, the kids that challenge you the most, you can always list a bunch of strengths. You can see the strengths in all kids and But then you do see some people who are just burnt out and just you don't even know why they got into this field and they just don't see it. They don't realize when a kid is communicating something. Yeah. They're not picking up the signals and they're not understanding how much a kid knows. Yeah, it takes effort, right? Just like everything. And I feel like, I don't know, when we talk about the strategies, I was having some thoughts about effort too, but it's more of an end of the chapter discussion. (laughs) So all this is to say, we don't just ignore behaviors or let them slide. We just need to pay closer attention to them and make note without assuming that they're pathological or disordered or an intentional choice to be challenging. Presuming competence means we recognize that behaviors are necessary adaptations to the body's signals. And once we understand the adaptive function of a behavior, we can decide if and how to intervene. She notes that if a child's behaviors are more severe, like if they're disruptive to family life or really interfere in a school setting, which is what we were asking about, we need to make respectful modifications and accommodations using a multidisciplinary approach. And, you know, I have to say, I really like that she emphasized the multidisciplinary team. Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the key to what we were talking about just a little bit ago with behavior, right? It's like, we're not the experts in behavior. We're the experts in communication. Mm -hmm. And I think, I love that she emphasizes frequent communication with the pediatrician. Thinking about her, it's like it makes sense for her role as the therapist, right, who's helping the parents to be in contact with the pediatrician. But I've rarely 
I think I the most I've ever gotten is kind of secondhand information from parents like, you know, oh, he's dealing with like an inner ear infection. It's like, oh, okay, well, that explains a lot about his behavior. Or, you know, I've had parents adjust children's meds without telling the team to try to see if we recognize a difference in behavior. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, you do and they're like, well, we adjusted the meds. And it's like, okay, so I feel like I've gotten information about meds and like, brief health things, but never kind of this in-depth, truly multidisciplinary, everybody bringing to the table their piece. And I don't know if that's just kind of something she uses a lot of examples from school settings. So I guess it's happening in some schools. But when I think about that, it just sort of makes me think more of outpatient kind of private practice medical model stuff where the doctor would be involved. Yeah. And I mean, I think especially with kids with autism, what we're talking about, kids who, you know, often have disruptions in their sleep cycles, gastrointestinal issues. Like I've had so many kids with nutritional issues and it would be so helpful if we could understand how much of this behavior is because of stuff going on in their body. I think it would be easy to generalize and go, oh, it's a sensory issue. But it's like, well, is he sleeping? Does he have constant stomach pain? There could be so much going on. I did have a weird moment right. when I was reading this this chapter. Dr. Delahook is from Los Angeles. Right. And her face looks so familiar to me that I was like, have I been in an IP, an IP with her? And I got really freaked out. As she described different kids and stuff, I just pictured being in a meeting with her. And I was like, have I? Like, is there any oh way gosh. for me to go back? No, there's not. You would have been blown away and instantly in love with her (laughs) if you had. I don't know, though. I don't know. Because sometimes it could be like the outside psychologist coming in and kind of, you know, you don't feel that teamwork. You feel more like you're being scolded, (laughs) like my neighbor. Yeah, scolded. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, first of all, if you have been in a meeting with her, I wish you could remember. But two... That's also like a really interesting point to make that I was thinking also is like this book was written from her perspective of coming in, talking to the team, telling the team what she thinks. And it always has this kind of like bow wrapped up finish where it's like and then all of the team made the changes. They got a new aide in who was much warmer and kinder. And then the child made so much progress in like two months. And I love those stories and I'm really happy to hear it. but. I feel like maybe some stuff got left out, you know, about how other people felt or even that. I mean, you haven't gotten there yet, but the story about the student who went into that locked room. Yeah. uh, The calm down room. Right. Who then developed the phobia of the locked door. I feel like there's just like a lot of shaming of the aide, but I don't know if the aide really knew they were doing anything wrong. And Yeah, we can talk about that. Yeah. I feel the exact same way. As someone who worked in schools for a long time, you know there can be friction when an outside person comes in and is really kind of dictating what should be done. Right. Because, yeah, in a perfect world, in the school setting, we could apply all of this. That would be great if everybody was trained in these strategies and that's the way we could support. And maybe that's her goal is to get as many people to understand this stuff as possible. But the reality of it is in the classrooms I worked in, we weren't talking about a general ed classroom where one kid was snapping their fingers or one kid was touching the heads of other kids and singing. We're talking about a classroom where, you know, kids were getting hurt 
And that wasn't the only kid with behaviors. And a teacher is just barely staying afloat. So, I mean, yeah, maybe having somebody like Dr. Delahook come in and find the best ways to support the whole class would be nice. But right. these are kind of idealistic scenarios. Yes, I don't know. Examples. Yeah, I agree. We love Dr. Delahook. Yeah, of course we, we do. <laughs> we can see her vision. Yeah. But we also love school speech therapists and teachers. So I think the big summary is you need to be able to walk the walk before you can talk the talk. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. What we want to do is teach children that the body carries wisdom. So instead of reacting instinctively when a neurodiverse child has disruptive behaviors, we need to pause and teach them to respect the signals from their own bodies, involve them in coming up with their own solutions that honor their individual differences. And this contrasts with the ways many therapists attempt to control behavior from the times these kids are really young. So for Norton, our little boy with the snapping, his teacher tried using a sticker chart, but when he wouldn't earn enough stickers to get the prize at the end of the week, he would become really distressed. So the teacher discontinued it. And then in a session with Dr. Delahook, where they were role playing, which Norton really loved, apparently, he asked her to play the part of his school behavior therapist. And when she asked him if it bothered him when she told him to stop snapping, mm -hmm. he said, yes, I snap when I'm anxious. So this was a really big moment where he labeled the way he felt and was giving his parents and Dr. Delahook a look into how he experienced the world and that the snapping was really helping him cope with anxiety. Mm -hmm. She says she wonders what it does to kids when we instruct them to do something to change their body's adaptations, like when we ask them to have quiet hands. We're asking them to stop an action that their body is telling them to do. And what does that do to their nervous system? Right. And then she says, in terms of teaching kids about emotions, often we do this in a really unnatural way using picture cards or flip books. But emotions can be taught much more organically by supporting the child discovering their feelings, sensations, and thoughts in their own body as you play. Because the embodiment of experiences is much more powerful than learning through pictures or out of context. Norton's team at school met and discussed how to move forward. Some wanted to help him find a replacement behavior that was less distracting, but Dr. Delahook urged them to reframe the finger snapping, use the therapeutic use of self, and support Norton when he was snapping his fingers by asking him things like, is your body telling you something about how you feel or what you need right now? Or is there anything I can do to help right now? It's okay to find replacement behaviors, but it's better to send the children messages of tolerance and acceptance. So we shouldn't automatically judge diversity of movement and behaviors as negative. The messages of compassion and tolerance the teachers sent to Norton, along with his sharing more verbally about his anxiety, ended up decreasing the snapping by about a third without any intervention other than that. So the teacher allowed the snapping and the OT helped him to explore other sensory strategies that felt soothing to him. And he ended up choosing to squeeze his hands together really hard for input when he felt like he needed it, which was soothing. And this approach made Norton feel valued, understood, and safe. When he felt anxious now, he could use sensory strategies or seek support from the trusted adults around him. And this couldn't have happened without his history of playful, safe, and engaged relationships that created a foundation for social-emotional development. It allowed him to be able to use a word for a feeling, which gave the adults around him insight into the purpose of the disruptive behavior. So for his iceberg, at the top we have finger snapping, but then below the surface there's sensory and movement differences, fluctuating stress load, anxiety, hypervigilance, natural movement preferences, and adaptive movements. So 
this is a big shift. Instead of focusing on disorder and neurotypical standards, we appreciate the adaptive nature of the behavior, respecting the wisdom of a child's brain and body connection. So now the story of first grade student Janelle, who was diagnosed with autism at age three. She had difficulty Mm -hmm. with communication and social skills, and she would sing parts of songs repetitively and touch other students' heads and arms in the classroom, which was disruptive. Jingles. Did they say jingles? Later on in the chapter, she talks about Janelle and she says, singing jingles. So, Oh, I've known a kid or two who loves to sing jingles. So the teacher tried positive reinforcement for good behavior and sitting quietly, but got little result. So then they decided that when Janelle engaged in her disruptive behaviors, she would be taken to a calm down room, which was a little former storage space where they took kids who were in trouble. So the first time it happened, Janelle was really confused, which got me thinking it's like sometimes we think they'll know that every time they do this this happens and then they'll stop that behavior that they were doing before but this kid is just like what's happening right now she's not relating the two things right oh i was touching my classmates heads and then i get taken to the calm down room right janelle was really confused she didn't know why she was being taken and the aide was pretty cold to her and they just went into this room and the door locked with a really loud click and then the aide just sat there ignoring Janelle for three minutes and when they got back to the classroom the teacher thought it had worked because Janelle was no longer engaging in those disruptive behaviors but in fact she says this is fact but Dr. Delahook later discovers that Janelle was just so terrified by what had just happened that she'd moved into the blue pathway. So the next week when Janelle's mom was dropping her off at school, Janelle refused to get out of the car. Right. And then the following day while they were shopping, she freaked out when she saw a dressing room and heard the door to the dressing room lock loudly. She starts crying and hyperventilating and her mom has no idea why. So they all met and went over what had happened at the school and Dr. Delahook got to the bottom of how the incident had impacted Janelle. So sometimes we can make matters worse when we view adaptive behaviors as bad and withdraw social support, like that ignoring. And this is why, especially with autistic children, we have to be able to distinguish between intentional misbehavior and innocent adaptive behaviors. Janelle's behaviors in the classroom were the result of her sensory overreactivity and her need for proprioceptive input. So to punish them in this way was actually really harmful. We'll come back to Janelle. So she mentions Mm -hmm. that there are emerging new perspectives on autism. And one that she really loves is the movement sensing perspective that was developed by Elizabeth Torres and Caroline Wyatt, researchers at Rutgers University. They describe autism as underlying differences in moving and sensing instead of a disorder of social cognition, interaction, and communication, like in the DSM. Autism behaviors represent complex differences within the nervous system's bi-directional information highway. Basically, she's just saying there are changing perspectives on what autism is and why children have behavioral differences that are really shifting the ways that we can support them. She has a section called Behaviors in Autism, and she says we should avoid saying things like this behavior is common for children with autism because this is something that said often in IEPs and parents find these statements to be dismissive. There are too many variations within autism and other developmental conditions to make generalizations like this useful and it undervalues a child's individuality. Also avoid assuming that low scores on standardized tests accurately reflect functioning. They can underestimate skills because they were designed for neurotypical children and a child might 
know the answer to a test question, but be unable to show or tell the evaluator the answer due to a stress response or sensory or movement differences. So we'll go back to Janelle and describe what they ended up doing. The team decided to shift to an appreciation of her behaviors as the adaptations that they were. But now Janelle was afraid of locked doors. So they did have to like work on that. So first the team reflected on how the behaviors were adaptive for Janelle. So she quotes Dr. Torres at Rutgers who says many asymptomatic behaviors such as stimming, averted gaze, and ritualistic routines might be understood as coping mechanisms supporting stability and control of perception and action. You can view them as helping the child cope with taking in information from the world through their sensory systems, which this made me think of the kids who flick their fingers in front of their eyes, which it's amazing because I've had multiple kids who do that. Mm. It is incredible that all these kids who've never met each other, their body adapts and they are taking in light in a certain way and they either like it. I I mean, it's just amazing to watch what the body does naturally, instinctively to adapt to sensory processing, I guess, you know. To adapt, right. Okay, so in Janelle's case, she was sensory overreactive in her auditory system and underreactive in her proprioceptive system. They immediately stopped any negative consequences to her behaviors. They stopped trying to use top-down strategies because her behaviors were likely bottom-up. And they prioritized increasing relational security in the classroom. So no more ignoring. They made sure that she felt supported by the adults. And they increased therapies that would capitalize on the sensory input Janelle was seeking naturally. So she ended up seeing a music therapist who really helped her feel more in control and connected to her body. And Dr. Delahook says, we can support a child's autonomy by offering activities that promote integration, improve communication and self-advocacy, and most of all, relational joy and connectedness. So what we want to do is support development rather than just treat what we see as deficits. So we no longer place blame on autistic people or pressure them to conform. And the teacher and aide, after they did this, stopped feeling pressure to change the behaviors. They allowed her to engage in them. And Dr. Delahook led a class discussion that helped the other children understand her behaviors. And she said the innocent and loving comments and questions reminded them that children are inherently tolerant, accepting, and flexible. So we aren't reinforcing negative behaviors, but we're helping children feel safe, take more risks, and realize their full potential. And she notes to make sure pediatricians are involved in case the cause of any behaviors is something like chronic pain or infection. And then she describes disorderism, which is lowering our expectations of a child and placing an invisible ceiling on their potential. She says labels influence expectations because we view patterns of developmental differences as deficiencies, and we should appreciate neurodiversity rather than trying to change behaviors to look more normal. And we can listen to the voices of autistic people themselves to learn more about this. So Naoki Higashida, the author of The Reason I Jump, said, we don't even have proper control over our own bodies. Both staying still and moving when we're told to are tricky. Mm -hmm. It's as if we're remote controlling a faulty robot. On top of this, we're always getting told off and we can't even explain ourselves. I used to feel abandoned by the whole world. So sad. Yeah. 
pretty awful to hear. If you think about there were probably people there trying to do their best and not understanding him. Yeah. So to interpret behaviors in neurodiverse individuals, first, we need to understand that the sensory or motor movement profile can affect the child's ability to show you what he's thinking and what he can do. Next, get support from an SLP right away to help a child communicate. This is where she mentions facilitated communication as a subspecialty of speech language pathology. I don't know. Do we want to say anything about facilitated communication? You know, the jury is out. And we recommend if you're interested in that, that you do your own research. Okay. Um, Maybe this is a good time for us to just reiterate that, you know, all of these opinions we're talking about are Dr. Delahooks and you know, that it never really reflects exactly what we think. We respect her a lot. We love her book. We've been learning a ton from her. But, you know, all of us have our own experiences that we bring to the table when it comes to some of these things. So we're very grateful to Dr. Delahook for writing the book so that we can all learn from her. But there are some things that, you know, I think are still more research needs to be done. And we're still always finding out more. Yes. And then also she says, give the child time to build relationships of trust in order to risk making mistakes. She talks about how sometimes we ignore behaviors when we should be valuing them. And she tells the story of a teenager who described a session with a behavior therapist when he was young. Okay, so this child was trying to communicate that he wanted to leave and he walked over to the window and pushed his nose against the window. But the behavior therapist thought he was like stimming and was preoccupied with these dogs outside. So she told the mom, let's just ignore the behavior and get him back to the table. So children don't necessarily understand that you're ignoring the behavior and not the child themselves. And when kids feel ignored, it degrades the social engagement pathway. It fuels confusion and decreases connection. So instead of ignoring a challenging behavior, do the opposite and pay close attention. What is the child trying to tell you and how can you make it easier for the child to communicate in that moment? To expand our understanding of behaviors, we need to collaborate and expand our notions of and tolerance for behaviors that don't harm the child or others. So ask yourself, is changing the behavior truly in the best interest of the child? There's a worksheet on page 220 that will help you understand a child's differences and natural inclinations in order to decide if you should intervene or shift your own expectations. So you'll ask yourself if the behavior is fulfilling a need, if there could be distress or pain, and if you have the child's entire team involved. And then she talks about classroom application. We need to be careful with the words we use and the messages we give children about their preferences, especially in a classroom where our words impact all the children. And we can help students in a class appreciate signals from their body as valuable pieces of information instead of ignoring them. And we can model acceptance of differences so that our children today will appreciate and respect human variations. There are worksheets on page 222 and 223 that present situations in the classroom and how you could respond. So instead of saying, you need to keep your body still, you're disrupting your neighbors, you could try something more like, I see your body is asking you to move around a bit. Would you like to stand up and stretch? She also gives examples for auditory and touch preferences and differences. Yeah, I think, you know, this was like one of those things, Laura, where I was reading this and I was thinking like, I love this sort of best case scenario where a student is under the desk and you're trying to teach, you know, 27 other kids and you say like, hey, sweetheart, seems like you're overstimulated. Would you like to come sit on this pillow next to me? Like, I love that vibe, but I've like been in a classroom before 
where there is so much going on that I really wonder like, how viable is that? Like, maybe that's something where the aide can do that and not the classroom teacher. I could see it being a lot easier for an aide to have some things at her disposal or to kind of like help the student up and sit in a different space. But for the teacher, for the onus to kind of be on the teacher to do that, I just, I, it makes me feel for the teachers because if you are in an IEP and an outside person is telling you these are the things you need to do and you already have 15 things that you need to do in that moment, focusing on learning, focusing on all the other kids, maybe you have more than one kid with behavioral issues. I'm thinking about one second grade teacher that I knew who was amazing and because she was amazing with sped kids, they would give her a bunch of the kids who had you know, more behaviors and that were a little tougher. And I just always felt like that was kind of unfair to her because then she had like three kids with three different sets of behaviors. She's trying to balance them with all these other kids. And I could just see that that would make you feel guilty mm -hmm. when you're trying your best, you know? Yes, this is tough. And I think that a lot of the examples that she's giving are kids with, it sounds to me like there's a lot of kids maybe with autism who are in general ed and have an aid, like have a one-on-one -on -one aid, right? Which I guess would be the ideal situation. Sure. It's just like this inclusive classroom. This kid maybe has some challenging behaviors, but they have someone there supporting them right. that they can build this relationship with and with the teacher. Right. It doesn't seem like that's always right. what the real world is, what we're dealing with. So I agree with you. It's really tough. Yeah. I think I just wanted to like stand up. Yeah. For those who like are really trying their best. And even in the case of Janelle in the book, like the singing, the touching other kids and the solution is like, just let it happen. Yeah. Just understand it. And I'm like, on one hand, I'm like, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, sure. But like on the other hand, like kids don't want to be touched. Yeah. What about them? You know? Yeah. And I don't want to be missing the big point here. Definitely. <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, she has given some examples throughout the book that are more extreme. You know, like I, I remember a little boy maybe named Felix who would pinch the teacher. Right. 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 Yes. Yeah, a couple chapters. Ago. You know, yeah. I've had kids who are tearing people's hair out. Right. So, yeah, that's a more desperate situation where you really have to understand what's going on below the surface. But I don't know. This is tough. It's probably case by case. Yeah. Okay. So we can model awareness and self-compassion to the kids that we work with. And that also demonstrates planning, sequencing, and adjusting your motor actions. So she has some worksheets on pages 225 and 226 that give phrases you can use to help children tolerate and communicate as they pay attention to feedback from their bodies. So you could say something like, my body's telling me to sit down for a moment, and then you sit down, or my eyes are telling me it's too bright in here, and then you turn down the lights. So you're modeling for them adjustments that you make depending on your sensations. And then on page 226, there are questions you can ask to help a child utilize the information that's coming from body sensations like, is your body telling you something right now? And I really like that example. And I was feeling like that would be something that would be really easy to just implement, right? It's like to just be a little bit more aware and kind of model that. That'd be so easy to do. And I bet would go a long way. Definitely. And then she finishes up the chapter talking about ordering our priorities. So if compliance is our top priority, we send a message to children that they should ignore their bodies. 
Norton from the beginning of the chapter got that message when they wanted him to stop snapping and his parents ended up moving him to a private, a small private school where he could sit on an exercise ball or on the floor and explore self-generated sensory experiences that he needed to feel calm and attentive. And he really thrived at that school and then went to a small progressive public high school and eventually graduated as his school's salutatorian. So just (laughs) wrapped up with a nice little bow, right? (laughs) Um, I love that. (laughs) But she gives you some questions to ask yourself when you're addressing a challenging behavior. Can I take the time to understand the adaptive nature of this behavior before trying to change it? Can I show tolerance and change my attitude rather than changing the behavior? And can I use the child's behavioral differences as a roadmap to providing supportive and innovative approaches? So I'm trying to think about this. Like I keep bringing up, what about the way more extreme behaviors? What about the ones that you can't go, this is adaptive for her or him and we need to let him adapt. (laughs) Right. I guess it is on a case by case basis. If you see that a kid is getting very physical Maybe that is sensory overreactivity. Maybe an OT needs to be involved. Or maybe it's something like chronic issues in their body that need to be addressed. You know, this is, I guess we can take her kind of softer examples and then apply them. If the behavior needs to be pretty much extinguished or you need to give replacement behaviors, you really have to get to the bottom of why the child's engaging in that behavior first. And then, you know, if you can't just change your attitude about the behavior, you can't go, it's okay that the teacher has a chunk of hair missing, you know, then you have to. Yeah, I'm thinking of a student who would scream at the top of his lungs, like ear piercing out of nowhere. Oh, yeah. Right. I mean, I worked at a two story school and I remember a kid where we were on the second floor and you could hear one kid and you'd go, oh, no so-and-so is having a rough day from down like in a far corner on the bottom floor. So it's tough case by case basis. But I guess in those cases, you just have to move quicker, get the whole team involved, really understand why, why the behavior is happening and then give that child ways of communicating and ways of coping. Yeah. So that's it for that chapter. Sorry if it was kind of rambling. It really really went all over the place. We tried our best. (laughs) Yeah. Next week, we'll be discussing chapter eight, which is about understanding behavioral challenges in children with toxic stress, trauma, and other adverse childhood experiences. And I feel like this is an area where I'm not super knowledgeable. So I'm excited to read what Dr. Delahook has to say. Same. All right. We'll see you next week. Bye, Adrian. Bye, Laura. At the SLP Book Club, our mission is to learn, grow, and connect with other SLPs and educators. If you love what we're doing, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. This helps other SLPs find the show so our community can grow even stronger. We appreciate you so much and hope you keep listening and reading along with us. Bye.